Okay, here's one for you, Philip. All right. It isn't the foe that we fear. It isn't the bullet swine. It isn't the business career of a shell or the bust of a mine. It isn't the snipers who seek oh, you're good. to nip our young hopes in the bud. No, no it, it isn't, isn't the guns and it isn't the Huns. It's, it's the, the mud. Mud. mud, mud, mud. How you doing, Maurice? Howling, uh, what's going on? What are you doing out here? All right, there's a lot of things that we can talk about in this opening segment, but what, what I want to talk about, Lee, is the very last segment. <laughs> Of Maurice just entering in, he's like, "Hey, what are you, what, what are you guys what? doing right he's here?" Like, Wait, what? He's like, "What's happening?" <laughs> Have you? What, what is the strangest conversation you've ever wandered into, like midway oh, through? Oh man, I could not. I nothing comes to mind. Like, I don't, I don't have any good examples right now. Uh, does do you have a do you have one of the top of your uh, head? No, no. <laughs> I, I wish I did. Like sometimes you hear about them though. Yeah. Like you walk through like Walmart or something like that, and you just hear snippets of conversations. You're like, I would pay any amount of money to know how this started. Yeah, like, please. <laughs> <laughs> you're like invested immediately. But you're like, how how did this conversation get there? Like I want to know. Was it organic? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, otherwise, I think it's a lovely poem. It's done by mm-hmm. Robert W. I want to mm-hmm. say his last name is his middle name is W and then service. That's right. Yeah. The poem is called Rhymes of the Red Cross Man. Sorry, Rhymes of a Red Cross Man. Mm. But uh, it's like the first, I guess you call that the stanza. It's the first stanza of that poem. And I mean, we've we've talked about Robert's service before because a previous guest of the podcast, uh, Brody, who came on for that was the episode, um, Three Amigos, right? Three Amigos, that's right. And he complained that that episode is so closely tied to the Call of the Wild. And he said it should have been referencing the cremation of Sam McGee, which is uh, the poem that they actually say at the end of this scene that we have this bite from. We talk about that poem a lot all on the Patreon. But I mean, we're probably going to talk about it a little bit today too, but maybe we should, you know, what, what are we even, what is this, Charles? What are we talking about? That's right. What we're talking about here, Lee, is Northern Exposure. We're the Northern Overexposure podcast. We're here to overanalyze every single episode of the CBS 1990s television series. My name is Charles, and I'm joined here with my co-host, Lee. My name is Lee, and I'm a huge fan of Northern Exposure. Watched it many times in season six. I've only watched once before. Like, the other seasons I've seen a lot. And season six, about 10 years ago, I watched it. So it's kind of like rediscovering this. Charles, you're watching Northern Exposure for the first time every episode. So every episode is fresh to you. That is correct. Watching it with fresh eyes. And uh, a little update since our last recording. It's a very, very small update. <laughs> but I have now I've now met two people that have seen Northern Exposure <laughs> like organically. And they were not... No, nothing to like, know. They were around none my of our age. friends, none of the podcasts. <laughs> yeah, I, I had mentioned... The show Northern Exposure, and these are two different people. One was in Germany. Interesting. And one was around my age, and both of them I mentioned. They're like, oh, yeah, my parents, I watched that show. We own, like, DVDs of it. We had, like, <laughs> a lot of bright puffer orange jacket of them. Yeah. And I thought it was really interesting because I've never, never spoken with anybody else. Never spotted in the Exposure. wild. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, you know, I think it actually happens every once in a while, but it's only because, uh, for me, I'm saying, like, uh, I, I, I meet someone who has watched the show or used to used to watch it and love it. And it's only because we get on the topic of like, what do you do? And I might talk about the podcast at some point. Um, and they're like, oh yeah, I've heard of that show. Or yeah, I have seen that show. I love that show. Um, so it's rare, but um, 
to come up organically, not even to bring up a podcast. And they're just like, they start talking about Northern Exposure. That's pretty- No, 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 no. I, I should, I should oh. reiterate. <laughs> I, I said, they were, they were talking they're about like, like- What are you about to do? And it's like, I got to go record for this podcast. <laughs> Is that what you're saying? Uh, no, not even that. I was just saying like, oh, like good television shows, uh, Barry Tyler Moore show, mm. uh, Larry, Larry Sanders show, Northern Exposure. And they're like, oh, I've seen Northern Exposure. And I was like, holy crap, of the three shows I mentioned, you know that one? <laughs> you know that one. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> Um, well, Charles, today we're talking about the mommy's curse. It's the 14th episode in season six. So we're kind of like, I guess, kind of in the mid, the mid zone of season six. Um, this is February 1st, 1995 is when this aired. Um, and it was directed by Michael Lang, who we'll be talking to later at the end of this podcast. So stick around. Hey, just a quick correction. We have recorded a great interview with Michael Lang talking about the mommy's curse. We're still editing it. It's going to be available next week in our main feed. Stick around for our interview with Michael Lang. It was written by Mitchell Burgess and Robin Green. And as I already said, February 1st, 1995. This is a Wednesday. We've talked about this. I think this is the third or fourth episode since they switched to Wednesday night. So the show used to... um you know, historically aired Monday nights and that, you know, coveted time slot. And with uh, mid-season around in, in season six, they switched to Wednesdays. Yeah, I'm so excited to talk with Michael Lang. Uh, I'm not saying this just to butter him up or anything like this, but when I was watching the episode, and this is also my thoughts for the episode, I thought that this was a very well-directed episode. There were a lot of camera movements and there were some stylistic choices. I, I was really grooving. I was digging his decision-making skills, his directorial eye to frame a shot. And I was thinking, I was like, this is great. Like, I cannot wait to talk to him about these decisions. Uh, he might be like, oh, no, 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 you're, you're just trying to like, <laughs> you're just yeah. trying to find things to make me feel better about myself. But I genuinely it's do kind of, like it. It is apparent too when you're watching this episode. I mean, I think Northern Exposure is a very cinematic show. But I do agree, Charles, like this episode in particular, and it's not just because we're thinking about, you know, it was this was directed by Michael Lang, so we should pay attention. Um, but it just kind of stands out. You know, it's something that we notice. There's a lot of camera moves, the dollying sort of like wrapping around characters or sort of shifting the angle. There also seems to be a lot of coverage that's like kind of covering the whole scene in these moving wide shots. Of course, they do cut into closer coverage. But I almost wonder if the scene could have played out like in a single shot. And I'm sure they probably shot it as a master shot and then went into closer coverage and, you know, editing it down to get it to flow better. They they cut into those uh, tighter shots. But, yeah, there's a lot, a lot of beautiful um, just shot listing, I guess you would call it, like how how Michael Lang chose to cover the scene. Yeah, I think that the greatest thing about it is that there is a logic mm. to all of it. It's not done because he just wants to flourish the camera. Like he'll do like a dolly, uh, like a wide around shot. I don't know what to describe it. It's like a rotation yeah. where it just follows around the characters to establish the scene. But then it'll end at a certain angle so that the left spot will be open so that the character can block and enter into a room that way. So there is a reason for why the camera had to go like a rotation right there mm -hmm. and to set up this new passage for another character. And I was thinking, I was like, oh, it's really smart. Like that's just a really good reasoning behind it. Hey, there's something that I have been neglecting to mention, but it was brought to my attention recently on the Subtextual podcast. They were covering the movie High School Musical 2. They have already done High School Musical. They did the first one. Very nice. Um, but they lamented at the cinematography in the sequel. 
and how it was not as great as the the first one. And the cinematographer for the first High School Musical is someone named Gordon Lonsdale. I think in Northern Exposure, he's credited as Gordon C. Lonsdale, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. And he shot like all of season five and all of season six. So he's what? all over Northern Exposure. Um, and so, yeah, he, he you know, we got to give him some credit too for this episode. Um, you know, he was making everything, you know, lighting it perfectly, you know, framing up, oh, the, yeah. framing up the, the shots. The lighting was also something that I really paid attention to this episode. Very naturalistic lighting. And I think that it played a specific purpose as to what they were trying to set up, whether it's the death of Leland or it was trying to bring more of an exposure to the outside elements between Maurice and Holling. You know what? Let's just get into it. Let's Mm -hmm. just talk about it in its natural context. So why don't we talk about the very first scene, which is involving Maggie and her mother. Yeah. So it's really interesting the way this episode opens up. I think it's sort of a tight shot on some flowers or Maggie is like putting flowers into a vase and it's this very shaky camera move. Like the camera's following Maggie as she rushes around her house. The camera's kind of shaky and she's uh, essentially just trying to liven up the place to make her house look more presentable because her mom is arriving uh, to visit. Like her mom comes in through the front door. Different actress. I don't know if you, I guess you probably would have noticed that Charles, right? Did you... Did you catch that this is a different actress for Maggie's mom? Not until the end. Not until towards the end. Yes. So I think Maggie's mom was in Burning Down the House. um, And she was probably also, yeah, she would have been in Gross Point 48230, those two episodes. I can't remember if she's in it anymore. But she was previously played by B.B. Besh. Actually, according to Moose Chick, uh, on on Moose Chick's site, they point out that uh, B.B. Besh passed away in 96 of breast cancer. Mm. So it's maybe it's possible that she was um, struggling with that, uh, battling cancer at the time. I, I really don't know. But uh, for whatever reason, maybe she just wasn't available. You know, she was working on something else. Um, in this episode, Jane O'Connell, or I guess Jane Stowe O'Connell, who is um, playing Maggie's mom, is played by Deborah Mooney. Oh, okay. Got it. I was wondering about that too. And I, I had figured out something must have happened behind the scenes right there. Mm-hmm. But we've got Maggie's mom here. You know, it's it's much the same. Uh, I think it's it feels true to the character of Maggie's mom, uh, even portrayed by a new, a different actress. Um, she has brought her new beau. I don't know what else to call it, like her boyfriend, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, this man named Leland Cole, a gentleman. Uh, he's entering into Maggie's house as they're kind of bringing in their luggage. He's got his own little specifically designed like little suitcase that he opens up and it's just like decked out. Like it's, it's designed to carry basically a martini bar inside of it. So he can just like, he's like, anyone want martinis? He just like opens up his luggage and there's the shaker, whatever else, the olives, whatever else you need. There's a few things that happen in this scene. Um, I wrote down in quotes, Maggie's mom tells her, uh, tells Maggie to keep your eye on the horizon, you know, always be looking for the next thing. There's some joke about how, uh, uh, oh no, this is, <laughs> sorry, uh, I, my notes are a little scattered in the scene, but it was because Maggie's mom met Leland on a cruise and uh, she was sick with motion sickness and she had forgotten to bring her Dramamine and Leland stepped in. I can't remember what the solution was, but maybe he had some medicine or, or something. He helped her out. 
And so she tells Maggie, you know, always keep your eye on the horizon. And I think that means you can definitely interpret that to mean like, look at the horizon so that you don't get motion sickness, but it could have a dual meaning there perhaps. Um, Maggie does correct her mom and says like, you know, technically you're supposed to like, look, what is it like 35 degrees above the horizon or something? Cause this is something she learned, I guess, from piloting. Um, so there's a little bit of that. And there's also, uh, what is I think important in this scene as well? Uh, the mention of Joel, Maggie's mom is asking about Joel. And, um, I guess the last that she would have heard is that they're engaged. So she wants to know when, when are they getting married? When are they having the wedding? Right. And then we cut to the opening credits. Do you want to stay on this plot line or do you want to move to the other two, which would be Holly and Maurice or Walt and Ruthann? Yeah. Let's save this Maggie and mom plot line. I think that has a, you know, the title of the mommy's curse. I think that's going to be a good one to focus on at the end of this podcast. But uh, let's go ahead and jump into... Uh, let's do Holling and Maurice, and I guess also Phil Capra, as we heard in that opening soundbite. Well, it's a pretty fun introduction into that plot line. There's a game of poker. Uh, cigars are being smoked, you know, just camaraderie. We've got Hayden Keyes, Maurice Minifield, Phil Capra, and Holling Vancour gathered around this table playing poker. I think maybe Hayden and Maurice are down but Phil and Holling are just having a ball, uh, you know, swapping lines of poetry back and forth. Um, they name Robert Service in this scene, Robert W. Service. And Phil says, yeah, haven't you heard of Robert Service, the poet laureate of the wild? Um, I think he he talks about a poem called The Whistle of Sandy McGraw, uh, which is, <laughs> these are the, the names in these like, you got the cremation of Sam McGee, the whistle of Sandy McGraw. I just love the names in these titles. Um, but yeah, it's just like, you know, you can tell from Hayden's reaction as well and Maurice's reaction that they're just kind of like, they kind of give a side eye to Phil and Hauling as they are uh, just reveling in friendship, just reciting poetry, uh, having a great old time. There's some funny jokes because Hauling's winning and he's... He talks about having this uh, like mound of gold or something like that, these riches. He might be reciting a poem there or something. I, I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they weren't too far off on that because Robert William Service, uh, yeah, I was correct. It was a W. Mm. He is often called the Bard of the Yukon. There we go. Okay, so it yeah. totally fits. And that, I mean, just more credit to Brody. I mean, we talked about it already at the beginning of this episode, but our guest Brody. I think really hit the nail on the head by suggesting the cremation of Sam McGee, which obviously they invoke in this episode, just because, you know, this seems to be very fitting with the, the climate, just like the environment here. Um, as, as you're saying, the bard of the Yukon. And uh, yeah, if you want to hear us talk all about that poem, we have a Patreon episode with Brody where uh, he'll read the entire poem to you. And then we, we all dive in and just start talking about it and uh, Northern Exposure, our interpretations of the poem. Also, um, interesting enough, I should probably mention at this point, I know he's not in this plot line, but uh, Walt, the actor that plays Walt Moultrie Patton, uh, we've talked about it before on the podcast. He is also a jazz musician, a pianist, and he has a CD of his music. 
And I was lucky enough to get a copy of this CD and it's pretty great. He's a pretty good pianist. Um, he's not really a singer though. He does a little bit of singing He has a very gruff voice. And a lot of it is sort of spoken word, even so much to where he might stop in the middle of a song, like the whole band stops and he'll recite some lines and then come back in. It's a really interesting presentation. And there is a track on that CD of music called the cremation of Sam McGee. And he's pretty much just reciting that poem, uh, Moultrie Patton. And that, that CD is called give away a smile by Moultrie Patton. And uh, yeah, I think I would totally recommend it just as a Northern Exposure fan and, you know, fan of uh, jazz music. It's uh, it's pretty fun. That is a crazy coincidence right there. Uh, to get into a little bit more into Robert Williams' service, but not too much, he was actually a bank clerk mm. by trade. I did not know that. So he wasn't like a poet or anything like that. Nice. The bank would often send him to the Yukon oh. and he was inspired by the tales of the Klondike Gold Rush and that's where he wrote the two poems, The Shooting of Dan McGrew and The Cremation of Sam McGee. Hmm. So, yeah, I thought it was kind of interesting that he just got sent over there and he just particularly liked those <laughs> themes about it. That's awesome. Oh, I don't know if you noticed this, but did you look at what Phil was drinking? I didn't see it. What is it? It is a Bloody Mary. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I did remember that. That's crazy because yeah, you can kind of see it in some of the shots. Uh, what are the others drinking? Are they drinking like um, some sort of dark? Scotch. like Yeah, some sort of dark liquor there. Interesting. I wonder why the Bloody Mary for uh, Paul Provenza was just like, I think Phil would have a Bloody Mary. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> well, this is also the scene where they introduce the fact that Hauling is trying to build a boat. Mm-hmm. And Phil was greatly impressed by that. He's saying like, oh my God, I can't believe that you did all that. Like, that's amazing. And then Hauling says, well, you know, I got all these tools right here, but the only tool that I really need is an old egg beater hand drill. And Phil does the impressive thing that you should do if, if you have like a nuanced grasp of the situation is to like add in to that thing mm-hmm. with the item that he's talking about. I don't know if I'm explaining myself very clearly here, but you can, when you just watch the episode, you, you'll see what I'm trying to explain in that Phil says like, oh, when you use that thing, just like all sorts of vibrations and stuff, it's hard to get a handle on it. And that means I know what I'm talking about too. Yeah, he's uh, relating it to like an experience that he's had. Like he's like, I've experienced that too. And they're bonding on uh, just like, well, what what Holling's talking is about like, he really wants to feel close. Like, you know, it makes it feel more manual. Like it's less about machinery. It's more about feeling the vibrations of the wood, as you said, or just like planing the wood, the smoothness, you know, just really getting your hands dirty, you know? And uh Holling had mentioned that the name of the boat is going to be called the SS Miranda Bliss. And uh, Maurice has some line about, uh, you know, by the time you get that thing in the water, that kid's going to be a grandmother because it's been taking Holling so long to build the boat. But uh, I think turns out he's going to have some help in building that boat in this episode. All right. The next scene is a very short one. It is Maurice going into the brick looking for Holling because these two are going on something called a steam day. Mm-hmm. It's apparently something that they do together, but Shelley tells him that he is off with Dr. Phil building that boat. Yeah, Maurice seems to be pretty shocked because uh, Holling will never miss a steam day. You know, they always do it. I guess it's like a weekly thing, I'm assuming, but with some sort of uh, frequency. Yeah, very short scene, as you said. It immediately cuts next to Holling and Phil working on the boat. They're actually, uh, it's that soundbite that we played earlier where they're reciting more Robert W. Service. 
uh, the the rhymes of a Red Cross man. They're working on this boat, you know, planing wood, reciting poems, whatever it is. And she's saying, Maurice walks in at the end of this conversation kind of awkwardly being like what's wait what's what are you guys talking about what's going on mud 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 they're just like i love the childish energy that they are bringing in this in these scenes it's very silly it's over the top i think but it's just i just love seeing phil and hauling having such a good time and maurice is just like i think it's funny because maurice is jealous and he's mad but He's also just kind of like confused, like he just doesn't get it, which I think is funny. <laughs> right. And he comes in between Hauling and Phil and tells Hauling, hey, it's a great that you're building this boat, but come on, it's Banya Day. I got the liquor on the ice. We can go pick up that creamed herring. Mm-hmm. I got all the things set up, so let's head on down. And Hauling says, well, you know, I'm with Phil right now. I, I can't do that. And this is where, again, like I talked about it before, but like the logic of a shot comes in mm-hmm. because Maurice is in the middle of those two. So whenever we're seeing the conversation, the camera has both of them in the same frame, both of them meaning Hauling and Maurice. They're supposedly together. But then once Hauling says, oh, no, 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 I think I'm going to stay here with Phil, Maurice separates from the two and he moves to the right side, the further of the right side. And Holly and Phil are on the left side. Mm -hmm. And the camera keeps shifting between these two. So we have Maurice in his own frame, isolated by himself. And then it will naturally cut back because they're having a conversation. So whenever it's Holly and Phil's turn, the camera then goes on to those two. And they're together in the same frame. So it's a two-on-one right there. And, you know, it's not like groundbreaking. You would, you would even say like, yeah, that's how you would naturally do a back-to-back conversation shot. Like, how else would you do it? But I think it's really interesting that you're able to get Maurice into an isolated frame by himself right here. Yeah. And it started with him and Hauling in the same frame. So, yeah, the language of the camera is just working together right here to set up this scene. Yeah, like the ideas make sense on, on paper, like in the script here. But then it, just in the execution, it just um, – you can tell that it's, it's a deliberate choice of uh, – separating the two groups. There are, you know, Maurice and then the group of Hauling and Phil. And as you pointed out, kind of the most specific element is that Maurice is in like a single. He's alone um, at the point whenever he's, he he moves away. Like, um, you know, Maurice at one point apologizes. He's like, I'm sorry, Phil. Like, there's only space for the two of us. Like, I only reserved enough for us. So, you know, Hauling's going to come. And Hauling's like, no, I'd rather work on the boat. And uh, he even invites, at that point, invites Maurice to join to work on the boat, but Maurice turns them down. And um, that's when I think he starts to walk away from the scene and uh, the the two, Holling and Phil, are getting back at work on the boat and they start reciting the cremation of Sam McGee. And it's funny because it does it does actually cut back to Maurice as he's walking away and he turns around like listening to them. I think... They're just reciting this poem as if they think Maurice has already stepped away, like no one's listening, but he turns around and listens and it's it's just kind of silly. I like it. <laughs> yeah. Can you actually name any poem by memory? Can I recite any poem? I don't think so. Um, no, I don't think so. Uh, I, would lo- I, I haven't read poetry in, in a while, I'd say. Uh, there were some poems that I, I would reread and reread, and there are lines that I definitely remember. You know, in, in high school, you had to memorize to be or not to be, if you would call that a poem. That's more of like a monologue from that play, but there's some poetry in there, obviously. 
but no, I, I never did um, learn to like recall and recite poems. I guess like lyrics, maybe. But um, what about you? Did you ever have? Did you ever have any like stored in your memory? Oh, absolutely not. I, I have jokes stored in my memory. Yeah, I, I don't have poems. <laughs> it's definitely a thing though, where people. I don't know. Like I was going to say used to, but there are some people like I used to have like some roommates who, you know, had like a certain poem that they memorized because they really liked it, you know, and I don't know, it sounds like an old fashioned thing. Maybe it's not, but I I just think like, you know, back in the day, people would be like, they would just memorize the poem so they could. Yeah, I think that's way cooler. And I think most people would agree that it's way cooler, but I'm a, I guess I'm like a judgmental son of a bitch. Because whenever I see people look at their phones, whenever they're trying to recite something, it's just not nearly as cool as if someone just like sprouted out by themselves. That's like included on everything. Like if I see like a wedding speech and it's being done by a phone, or if I'm just seeing like a story being told at like a public avenue, something like that. I I just think like it would be so much cooler if they weren't like looking down at their phone trying to recite this. I mean like, you know, people who give presentations, they might have note cards, you know, but... That's also why you see like in movies and in real life, like people practicing in front of a mirror when they're about to have to give some sort of speech or like a wedding speech, you know, they try to memorize. It's just, it just, yeah, it just sells a hundred percent more if you're not looking at paper or especially not looking at your phone and uh, you can recite it. That maybe that, I mean, (laughs) we're already like half, I was going to say we're already like halfway through the year, but that's my new year's resolution is to memorize like three poems or something. <laughs> but sorry, I cut That's you off. That's a pretty good one right there. Uh, I mean, of course, you know, this, this is me being like overly judgmental. People are busy. They have better things to do. Yeah. They just want to recite from like the that no, cell phone. No, I don't think you have better things to do than than to read poetry. Come on. Like that's a that's no, pretty I don't important. mean that. No, I, I, I don't mean that. I mean, I mean like the, if you're trying. Yeah, sorry. I, was, I wasn't trying to diss you or anything. I'm saying people should, you know, they should make time for that, I think. <laughs> I meant like, you know, on the important occasions yeah. or something like that. Like if, if you want to read from your phone, then read from your phone. I don't want to like, I don't want to like harsh on your yums. Yeah. Like, <laughs> uh, the next scene, these two are kind of like interconnected with each other. And I'll say the first one really quickly. Okay. Because we're going to get more into it as their as its respective plotline comes up. But uh, Leland is not long for this world. Um, he, he he kicks the bucket and <laughs> Phil's got to come in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Phil's got to come in. He's got to investigate it. He's got to get the death certificate. And, you know, after that, he catches lunch with Holling. Uh-huh. And they're at the barn together making the boat. And I thought it was a really interesting decision to have the camera. It, like Dolly's downward. Very slowly, and then it settles. Yeah, it's sort of a crane, a crane shot, because it starts quite wide, right? And then it kind of pulls in. Is that, Am I right? No, I think it still stays the same. Sorry, I'm thinking of another scene in that same barn. I think it's later when Maggie's mom enters. But yeah, so it's kind of like it starts from above and cranes downward onto them as they're opening sandwiches and stuff. Is that right? Yeah, they're just talking about, you know, how great it is to do things like this. And, you know, did Maurice talk about me at the brick? But I'm really curious, is there a reason for why you would crane down that way? Let me watch it again real fast. I'll I'll, I'll take a look at it. Uh, Timestamp should be like around uh, 1630. Yeah, I'm seeing it is like a very subtle dolly move because it's like a slow move. And it does change... Like the eye level sort of changes because the camera's like above eye level and then it gets lower. 
Yeah, that's really, because it's not even a very pronounced move, but if you were to watch the beginning of the shot and then like the end of the shot, you can tell that the camera is higher to start and then it kind of goes a little bit lower, more eye level or a little bit below eye level at the point um, when they're kind of just sitting, eating and talking. Um, I think my guess to why you might shoot the scene this way is uh, at the start, we get more of sort of an establishing shot of where we are, the space, you know, we're gathering around a table for a meal, but also you get a very good visual representation of like, you can see the bones of that boat that they're making, you know, like they can see like how they're putting it together because by the end of the shot, which is like a more traditional two shot, it just seems more balanced, you know, at the end there, you don't see as much of the boat. You just see kind of like wood, you know, but at the start of the shot, you can clearly see the form of a boat. Whereas later, it's kind of hard to tell. It just looks like different pieces of wood stacked. I mean, obviously you would assume it was a boat, but you really get to see the the mass of the boat at the beginning. And then you slowly creep in closer as we get more absorbed in this conversation. That's what I think. Oh, that's so interesting. I, I didn't think about that. And that makes total sense. I like you would start up above where you can get a lay of the land. Mm-hmm. Like you said, you can see the boat. But as their conversation gets more and more in depth and you get, like you said, absorbed into the conversation, the camera finally comes down and settles with them, just like we've settled with them in the conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So just a very creative way of shooting it. You don't have to do as many edits. It feels a little more natural and uh, probably is a lot faster to shoot. You don't have to do as many camera setups to go from, you know, it's the same, it's just one setup to get you from these two positions. Within the scene, I thought it was really interesting that the sandwiches that they're eating, I don't remember what Phil gets, but the, the first sandwich that Phil opens is like peanut butter and pickles, he says. And he's like wraps it back up. He's like, that must be yours. <laughs> and then he grabs the other one. In the middle of the conversation, as Holling is probably, I think he said he mentions like, did, did Maurice talk about me? Like, what's going on? Um, he's like, oh, look, Shelly didn't forget my miracle whip. So am I to believe that he's got a peanut butter pickles and mayonnaise sandwich <laughs> right now yeah I, I think we're led to believe that uh holly <laughs> just has a very strange dietary choice <laughs> yeah uh the rest of that scene i think is more involved with maggie's mom maggie and the, the mommy's curse right so maybe we should move on yeah we can talk a little bit more about that once it comes to their turn and the next time that we're going to see Maurice, Holling, and Phil is at the brick. And this is the shot that I was talking about earlier, where it starts out with them on the right side. And then the camera kind of does like a rotation yeah, in order mm-hmm. to make its way all the way around so that you can see the door, the entrance of the brick, and then Maurice can come in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sort of an introduction. It kind of like opens up the shot into Maurice entering into the brick. At this point, Holling does apologize about missing the Banya day. We didn't we didn't mention that, but in, in an earlier scene, they talk about it as Banya, which I think is just another word for like sauna or, you know, sweat lodge or something like that. And so Holling's being genuine and Maurice is like, oh, it's okay. It's, it's fine. I, I went with one of my friends and we had a great time. I guess that's part of this plot line. We should talk about that for a second, right? That doesn't fit into any other plot line. Oh, yeah, you're right. All right, let's rewind. Let's get that. Let's insert that sound that you make whenever a tape recorder has to go back. That sound. (laughs) So it was like Ed who who Maurice brought into the sauna. And 
it seems very steamy in there, like almost like the camera lens is fogging up and it's handheld. It's not shaky necessarily, but it is handheld, which just, I think, adds to the chaos of this scene because Maurice maybe opens with Maurice pouring water onto the coals, which sends up like plumes of steam filling the room. Ed seems to be, uh, you know, about to pass out or something like very hot and, Maurice is like, oh, this is great. Isn't it great? Like, uh, here, take this whip. Like, they're like self-flagellating. Like, they're whipping their backs. Apparently, that is supposed to make you, I don't know, feel the steam more intensely or something. I, I don't know exactly. It's supposed to wake you up or something. And he's like, isn't that great? Here, have some more of this Aquavit. Like, drink some more liquor and eat some more of that creamed herring. And Ed's like, Maurice, I already had three of those. And you can tell Ed is like almost about to vomit maybe. Um, that's pretty much, I mean, like it, it does, it kind of hits all the buttons in that scene of Maurice being like, uh, can you imagine anybody passing up a chance to come to the sauna? I think it's funny as he says that he's like, can you imagine anyone passing up this chance? He's like, as he's whipping himself, he's, you can see that he's like growing more furious in his face and he's whipping himself harder and harder. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And apparently they had some crawfish with hot sauce beforehand. He's mentioned, uh, Ed mentioned that he's like, we've already, you know, I think it might've been the crawdads with the hot sauce, like the, the too much aquavit. Like there's definitely, um, they're over, I think Maurice is overdoing it. I think because, uh, because he's jealous, because he's mad that um, that Holling didn't come with him. Yeah, and that jealousy comes into that scene we were just in, mm-hmm. because he is now requesting that Holling return back his color TV. Mm-hmm. And he figures with, you know, all the things that him and Phil are doing together, he's not going to have any time watching that TV. And, well, <laughs> he needs it back because it's got a remote. So <laughs> it's a classic setup. Yeah. You know, it's like, uh, there's obviously something Beneath this. Right. It's like he and Maurice made a point to to say that it's like, oh, you're probably hanging out with Phil too much that you won't even have time to watch the TV. You're not going to miss it. And uh, Holling is just kind of like, okay, yeah, you'll get your TV back, whatever. The next time we see them, well, it's actually, I think it's Phil and Holling kind of walking down the street. Holling's talking about fishing. He wants to go fishing with Phil. He's excited to uh, introduce Phil to this lifestyle and just like the the amount of fun that they're going to have. It's like, you just wait, Phil, you're going to have so much fish. Phil, Phil relates a story of like back home in Santa Monica Bay. There was a sign there that would say, do not eat more than two pounds of fish per month from these waters. So, you know, in Alaska, hopefully uh, we're assuming that in Alaska, things are much better and they're going to get all sorts of fish, except as they're walking down the street, they do bump into Maurice who is loading the back of his truck with a bunch of, um, turns out, Fiber Seal Plus. Holling's like, oh, got all that Fiber Seal Plus. And Maurice says, yep, I uh, had to like buy it all. I'm going to coat my deck. You know, I'm going to do another layer on my deck of this Fiber Seal Plus. I bought everything that they had in the store. And Holling's like, well, that can't do. I mean, we're working on the boat. Like, let me buy one of these cases off of you. But Maurice is not going to have it. Will not sell any of this Fiber Seal Plus to Holling. That's right. And it gets into a physical altercation where Holling tries to forcefully take it. Maurice fights back. Phil's got to rip them apart along with uh, Hayden. Oh, yeah, yeah, Hayden, Hayden. hops in there He's at there. some point. Yeah. And they get into like a shoving match and a little bit of a tugging match as well because I, I want to say it's Maurice that tugs on right. Holling's hat. 
and rips it in half or maybe not in half, but like at least rips it. Yeah, he does some damage to the hat and uh, that definitely like puts a damper on what's going on here. And uh, Holling is kind of defeated. Maybe Maurice feels a little guilty, but uh, whatever the case, the damage has been done. We next see Holling at home and he's trying to repair this hat, the hat that Maurice tore. And Shelly walks in and Holling is explaining how, you know, this is his hat. It's uniquely his. It's not something that he could replace. It's like it just fits on your head the right way. The brow was situated in the perfect angle. Just by wearing it so many times, it's worn in and it knows the shape of his head. So by destroying it, it's like destroying something deeply personal to Holling. And the way he describes getting vengeance against Maurice is like this predatory whatever like whatever he's doing Shelly seems to like it cuz she's like oh yeah you know he's like i'm going to kill Maurice or whatever you know in that in that sense and um this is where Shelly kind of just shows Holling that Maurice is jealous and for whatever reason Holling couldn't just ne- it never crosses his mind the fact that this is just jealousy but she explains it through a story of uh I guess it was like high school or middle school friends or something. Shelly was like, when I was going to school, uh, this person transferred from another school and she immediately became like my new best friend. My old best friend got jealous and started talking bad stuff about her. I mean, it's not, it's not a terribly, um, it's a pretty much just like a one-to-one story. Like it's not, there's no like a complexity to it. It's just like, yeah, the same thing happened to me when I was in high school. I guess the, <laughs> I guess the relation here is that Holling and Maurice are acting like school kids. They're acting like children, you know? Right. That was my biggest takeaway from it as well. And it's also got pretty simple but effective framing, in my opinion, because the bedpost that comes between Shelley and Holling separates the two. And then once Holling opens up mm. a little bit more and Shelley relates her high school story, she comes and sits down next to Holling and the camera rotates to include them in the same frame without the bedpost separating these two. Nice. Very simple framing, but... Hey, man, if it works, don't fix it. Yeah, I mean, obviously he knows what he's doing. Michael Lang uh, knows what's going on here. Uh, so then is the next scene with Holling and Maurice, like at the dump? Am I skipping ahead? Uh, let I think that's sure. it. Yeah, this is kind of the end of it. And this was, to me, like uh, pretty pretty cheesy. I really didn't like the ending here. <laughs> I mean, it's just obvious Sure, it's fine, but it's it, it's not. I wasn't a huge fan of it, but uh, basically, Maurice is throwing away stuff at the town dump, and Holling drives up. And you know, I was thinking it was a recent episode where Maggie was trying to get a dumpster for Sicily. Uh, Maggie, as the new town mayor, uh, was trying to instill a, a central town dumpster so that they don't have to drive all the way to the dump. And now, because they don't have that central dumpster, we have you know Maurice driving out. Hauling, driving out, you know, seeing each other out there on the way or whatever. Uh, and, and I wonder, like, is this going to be the the laundromat of season six? Remember when they introduced <laughs> the laundromat back in like season what, five or four? Whatever happened to that laundromat? Did it shut down? I don't know. But the there is uh, there is like the the movie theater that we see later in this episode that has been shut down. So maybe uh, maybe that'll be some more real estate for Maggie to to chew up. But we'll see. Um, We'll talk about that in in Maggie's storyline. But uh, yeah, I mean, Charles, uh, I'll just kind of say it plainly. What happens here is uh, 
Holly and Maurice, well, at first, they don't say anything to each other, but then, you know, Maurice starts talking and he offers to buy Holling a new hat. And Holling says, no thanks. You know, this old hat is kind of like an old friend. And he almost says that without thinking, but as soon as he says it, he looks up at Maurice and he's like, oh, kind of like Maurice was an old friend, you know? And so he runs with that metaphor and he's like, you know, a new hat though, that could be fun for a while, get a little variety, a little change, you know, something different, but for a good fit, for a comfortable feel, there's nothing like an old hat. You know what I mean, he says. It's like not even like a question. He almost says it like a statement. Uh, so obviously he's saying Phil is just like fun for a little while, a little change, but I'll always have Maurice as my comfortable go-to good fit, best friend, or something like that. <laughs> yeah. The subtext, it's not really, not really subtle right there. And they're at the town dump, which means that Maurice feels like he's one of the trash that's being taken out. <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah. But that's the end of that that uh, plot line, I'm pretty sure. So we're to assume that, you know, they've made up. Uh, I don't know if Holling's actually going to get a new hat because uh, he does. At first, he turns him down. Maurice is like, what is that, like a seven and three quarters? Or like he's, he makes some measurement. And uh, Holling's like, no, don't worry about it. But then he does look at the hat later. And he's like, oh, you know, it's like seven and a half, actually. So maybe Maurice will buy him a new hat with that information. Or, uh, you know, maybe we'll see this. You can see the stitch mark in the hat in this scene. So maybe we'll see that same stitch mark in later episodes. But, um, you know, whatever does happen, I'm, I'm pretty sure they're going to be best friends next episode. All right. Let's bring it on to the next plot line, which can be Walt and Ruthann. Yeah. Lovely little plot line with Walt and Ruthann. I believe it starts when Walt just comes into Ruthann's store Oh, actually, it's like she's they're they're alone, right? I think she's like maybe closing up. Yeah, she's closing up, and Walt's coming in a little bit earlier from his trip. Ruthann makes a note saying like, "Oh, you're here early," and Walt says, "Yeah, the traps weren't they weren't setting off. I wasn't getting a whole lot of things, and the things that I were getting they weren't of the best quality." And this is where Ruthann says, "Well, why don't you work here?" And there's two different things that are happening here. What's happening on Ruthann's end is that she's saying. You're growing older. Your arthritis is acting up. Your mm-hmm. bones aren't as young as they used to be. And you're out there in the cold winter trying to catch these rabbits, rats, marmot, whatever. Yeah. And I think it's time that you settle down. And, you know, it's another conversation to be had about a relationship. It's time for us to settle down. Uh-huh. And for Walt, he's seeing it in a different way. He's saying, like, Oh, it's like another job for me to do. Yeah. Like, this is just like another thing. And I don't think he sees it in the same way that Ruthann is seeing it. Yeah. There's definitely a little bit of a miscommunication there. Um, But it's going to bring them closer, you know, literally physically closer. They're working together. So they're going to learn a lot from each other uh, in their um, proximity. So let's move on to the the next scene with them, which is, uh, I guess, like the first day that Walt is starting work at the general store and she's showing Walt how the things are done around the shop. It seems pretty simple. However, Ruthann has some particulars, um, you know, like she says, you know, you want to, uh, organize the cans like this. You cycle them out. Like the old ones come to the front and the new ones go to the back so that it always, you know, nothing really spoils, you know, and, uh, you always want to make sure that you get the labels facing outward and, 
Walt bucks a little at this. He's like, because he was kind of like starting to do the organization. He's like, you know, I wasn't finished yet. I'm still, I'm still doing it. Of course, I'm going to put the labels outward. So we get a little bit there that there might be um, some tension, perhaps brewing. But uh, it, everything seems pretty hunky-dory so far. We also learned in this scene uh, that Walt hasn't had a day job in about 40 years, he says. I think he says that to Ed, who is uh, not fired from the store. You know, Ed can still work there. Walt is just added um, to help out, to alleviate some stress on Ruth Ann so she can do more book work and things like that. Uh, seems like it's going to be a good setup. Exactly. And it also goes to show that Ruth Ann is comfortable with a routine. She wants it done this way. And it's going to come into conflict in the very next scene where Walt has made some arrangements in her shop. He's taken to dinty moors that we open up on. Uh The shot literally opens up on a stack of dinty moors. And Walt explains that it's a POP, a point of purchase. It's something to advertise the presence of these things and people are going to want to buy them because that's our highest selling item and we don't need to put them on the shelf because people are naturally going to want to grab a can of these so now it frees up real estate on the shelf sounds like kind of good tactic from the people of walmart like he says later (laughs) uh but ruthann says no like i want it to be done my way yeah i mean she says i know what a point of purchase is like you don't have to explain that to me she's very particular and she i think mostly to her she says this, she calls it a cardboard castle, junking up the aisle. She's, she doesn't like the look of it. It's not the right feng shui for her store. Walt has a point that, you know, it's marketing. You know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's wasted motion in, to take these cans and put them on the shelf when we know that people are just going to buy them regardless of how they're presented. But I don't know. Yeah, Ruthann has her own way of doing things. Like for her, maybe it's not so important that she sells uh, cases and cases of these Denti more. She wants to present uh, a comfortable shopping environment, perhaps. But Walt ultimately abdicates. You know, he says, you can have it your way. And uh, he lets out a sigh and puts his apron back on. Because he was actually, at the beginning of the scene, he was like, all right, it's time to do that lunch break. What do you say, Ed? And he's like, or he's like, Ruthann, I'm buying. And he's taking his apron off. But no, he needs to take these. He can't just like plop these cases of Dinty Moore out in the middle of the store. He's got to actually work and put them on the shelf. So he <laughs> puts the apron back on. Right. And that brings us to the very next scene, which is Walt and Ruthann eating dinner in, I want to say it's Ruthann's house. Yeah. Not particularly sure. It is? Okay. I think so. You know what? I we I was going to say we don't really get to see Walt's house too much, but we did see it the last, one of the last episodes where He's like working on his computer and shows Ed all of his like oh yeah his traps, <laughs> his like computer programs. So he has. A, I was gonna say like I assumed he just lived in like a shack somewhere, but no, he has internet. Like because he had like the Wall Street, <laughs> he was trading online, doing that day cra- trading. It's crazy to me. He's like he's just wearing furs, but also like has internet at his house <laughs> with all like how many pixels would you say? <laughs> So that screen with those, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it's got to be like 480 or something at most. <laughs> That's what standard uh, video was, I guess, but could be less than that. Anyway, go go ahead. Yeah. So what's happening in the scene is that they're continuing their argument. They brought work 
home. Mm-hmm. And they're still having an argument about the Dinty Moors and Ruth Anna saying like, well, if someone tripped on the cans, they could sue me. And Walt says, well, you then that's why you have insurance. And she says, I don't want to pay the premiums. And he's like, well, aren't you just trying to like just survive <laughs> instead of building up your franchise? And so that pulls Ruth Ann into saying, let's just put a pin in it. But then she realizes that they're not, they're not young. Like yeah. they don't need to be doing this. And she says, Walt, let's not do this. You know, let's make a distinction. Let's compartmentalize between work and work and home is home. Yeah. And we're just going to agree to disagree. Yeah. So little impasse there, but, you know, we're going to keep the work there. Get, Walt gets a second chance there at the store. The next time we see him, that you know, Ruth Ann, I think, is working on organizing some magazine displays and a customer is in the store. Dwight, we later hear his name. He's ready to check out. And Walt is like, oh, Ruth Ann, don't worry about it. Let me get this. I'll take care of the front. I'll do the register. You keep working on your magazines. You're having fun there. So Walt, you know, is very, um, you know, he's very friendly with the customer, very talkative, probably too talkative though, because he's talking about every single item in the basket. Like as he rings something up, he takes it out. He's like, oh, Where'd you get these? Like, can you tell me what is this? Like, I want, I want some of this. Or he's like, oh, you know, athlete's foot, you know, you better like, you know, that that's the one that like sets Ruth Ann off because he's talking about a potentially embarrassing uh, ailment that this customer has. He's kind of talking about it loudly throughout the store. There's more than just Dwight in the store. There's other customers. So everyone gets to hear about Dwight's athlete's foot. And Ruth Ann is like, all right, no, 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 Walt. I'm going to do the register. It's like, I've got it. I've already rung it up. It's like, no, you didn't hear me. I'm going to do the register now. And it becomes this fight and the whole store is kind of like drawn into this, like their attention is drawn into this disagreement between Walt and Ruth Ann here. Right. And Walt kind of ends the scene by saying, well, you would know best. You're the master of customer relations. Yeah. And it's just like a classic misunderstanding between the two of how they want things to go by. Walt wants to just talk to the customer in this way in which he can have a conversation. And Ruthann wants to run it like a business. He wants to run it very straightforward. You get your things and you get out. And the next scene, it's actually kind of funny because it's Walt and Ed like secretly sneaking in a break down in the basement. Like they're loading all this dog food down into the basement. And I think uh, Ed mentions something like, or Walt mentions this, that like Ruthann has ordered, she always orders too much dog food. So like, they end up like having to bring it back downstairs for storage and back upstairs. Like they're, they're constantly moving these things up and down from the basement to the display out front. Uh, so they're kind of just complaining at work, trying to catch a little, like sit down, catch a break down there. And uh, <laughs> Walt offers Ed some candy, like a chocolate bar or something. And he says, ooh, nothing tastes better than the five finger discount candy. And then he's, he rattles off a couple other names. So basically he's like, Ed, I stole this from the store. <laughs> it's like, don't you get it? Like, this is like, we can steal the candy or so. I don't know. I thought that was so messed up. Yeah. Why is he stealing from her? <laughs> I don't get, yeah, I don't know. I guess just, uh, oh, here's what, okay. Here's a theory I have about why the writers in this season or like why in this season, I don't know if it's just this season, but it just seems to, I seem to be noticing it a lot in five and six where Characters are doing more cruel things. But I have a theory about why the writers might use that in the episode. It's so that we don't feel so bad when bad things happen to, for instance, Walt. 
if he's doing something cruel to Ruthann, something bad happens to him, we don't feel so bad that he gets his just desserts, which is right after this scene. Like literally it leads, it leads from this basement to Ruthann being like, Walt, come see me in my office. I want to talk. And, and she fires him. We, we can talk about that. But I think uh, that could be one excuse for why Walt is doing something like this. It's the writers are trying to make him uh, have some sort of misstep so that whenever he gets uh, his due in the end, you know, it, it makes sense. It's justified. I I don't like I it. I see where you're coming from. <laughs> yeah. I see where you're coming from. And it makes sense from a writing perspective because you naturally want the audience to be sympathetic to Ruthann. So you got to set Walt up as a villain. Right. You got to make him perform in these ways. But like, I don't. It just doesn't seem true to the character, right? Right. It doesn't seem <laughs> right that Walt would do this. Yeah. And it, I don't know. Like he. It's not like he had to tie his hands behind his back to be like, hey, you have to work for Ruthann, like, or else yeah. you're going to go broke or something like that. It's like, <laughs> no, I feel like Walt would be enough of an adult to be like, all right, well, <laughs> you know, you you do things your way and I'm going to do things my way. And if you don't want things to be done this way, then I'm going to respect you. And that's what kind of makes like the next scene kind of, in my opinion, a little bit confusing because... Like you said, Ruthann calls Walt up to her office and she has to let him go because she doesn't think that he's fit for retail. And Walt, in his retaliation, says, you know, I've been fired by people better than you. Merrill, <laughs> Merrill Lynch, I've, uh, Charlie Lynch, I don't know, like the owner of the right, place right. came down and fired him myself. I'm saying like, I, I, don't, I don't like where this is heading. Yeah, I do like the, at the end of that where... Walt, I think one of his last lines in this scene is basically, uh, you know, Ruthann, I thought I was doing you a favor. You know, here I thought I was doing you a favor by taking this job. Because if you remember at the very beginning there, it was Ruthann that suggested to him that he should work at the store. And maybe you're right, Charles, and you're saying that like Walt was uh, thinking of it more as a job and less as a way to settle down. Because they do talk um, about retirement in that first scene. Ruthann asks Walt, have you ever thought about retiring? And Walt says, well, I have, but I would go crazy. Essentially, he says, I would go crazy if I had nothing to do. So maybe one way we can look at this, as you're saying, Charles, is Ruthann uh, trying to persuade Walt to settle down and Walt instead reading it as a job. But now it's kind of like Walt is saying, well, maybe I, I never actually wanted to do this. I was more doing it out of a favor towards you. And I feel... uh a little cheated, a little heartbroken that you would fire me when I'm just trying to help you out. But that's the, the, that's the like, disconnect in their argument there. You know, Walt thinks he's helping Ruthann and Ruthann wants something a certain way. They're having a disconnect. Yeah, but if that was true, if Walt genuinely wanted to improve Ruthann's store and everything, why are you stealing from her? Yeah, that doesn't Like, that doesn't help at all. Sense. Like, what, yeah. are you, what are you talking about? The disconnect between him and Ruthann. There's a disconnect between him and his actions. Yeah, I, I think it's funny that he... It's just doing that, but it it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it's like why why would you do that to Ruthann if you're doing her a favor, as you said? Like why if you care about Ruthann, why do you steal the candy from the store? I guess he's just thinking like it doesn't amount to anything. But come on, it's the well, little it's the things. principle. It's the little things. It's the principle. Yeah, it's like are you like what? Like no, <laughs> like first of all, it's you can make you know any number of debates to be like oh if you steal from like a giant corporation, whatever. Obviously, this is not Walmart. Yeah. This is a very little store that you're stealing from. Exactly. And then top it off, you're stealing from your loved ones. So, yeah, I, I just thought that whole exchange was unusual. Mm -hmm. But it, it leads into the final one between the two, 
which is where they're sitting on the bench together. Well, there's a couple. Before we get there, there's uh, actually it's just like one little thing. Very, very small. Oh, what is it? So it kind of is in Maggie's storyline where she's alone drinking at the bar of the brick. I mean, there's other people in the brick, but she's like drinking there. There's a very brief moment where we see Walt enter in the brick and he looks across the room and he sees Ruthann is eating at one of the booths and she sees him. So she picks up her magazine and starts reading. Like she's like, nah, you're not sitting here. I'm going to read this magazine. So Walt goes to sit alongside Maggie and they kind of sit together in their in their aloneness and their sorrow, and it fades out. That's basically it. And then then oh, it goes to okay. yeah, yeah, to Walt sitting alone at this bench, and Ruthann comes up. Yes, this is where they're going to have the conversation about the state of their relationship. This is all really in service of the larger conversation that's happening with Maggie and her mother, hmm. and. It's done in a way in which I don't think it needs to be involved in that. Let me rephrase it. Okay. It just shouldn't have been with it because now you're sacrificing the characters in the service of a idea or a theme that was being done in Maggie's side. And what I mean by all of this is that they're having a conversation about how the relationship is. Mm-hmm. And Ruthann makes it a point to say like, Oh, I thought that we were doing fine. We were eating together, sleeping together, doing all these things. I thought the state of our relationship was going well. And then Walt says, you women, you think that like once the frying pan gets hot, you want to jump in. And Walt is making this definitive statement about the entire gender. And he's lashing out like this is because they want to make this a big thing about like how men and women are viewing relationships because that's, you know, Maggie and her mother's thing. But I, I like I don't think that it needs to be done because now in order to propel that idea, we need to sink Walt down further and we need to destroy this relationship to make a point. Mm. And I don't think that it needed to be done that way. Yeah, you know, I didn't even make that connection, but I think it's there. I think, you know, I didn't really see a whole lot of connecting between the plot lines, but I think what you're pointing out is that it is there. It's like there, there's a way you could tie the conclusion of this into sort of what Maggie and her mom are talking about in the end of their plot line. Cause the very next scene is Maggie being like, I'm finished with men. It's like men are this, this way and that. Oh, really quickly. I, I, I want to interject and say like, I'm basing this also off of the very last scene with Walt, where we know what the conclusion yeah. of their relationship is. At this point, with the ending scene of them in the bench and we get like a shot of them from behind, that's very lovely. It's left ambiguous. In fact, it's left kind of hopeful because Ruthann has a smile on her face. Wait, do you think do you think the very last scene, what do you think happens in the very last scene? I, they break up. I thought, I thought he was moving in with her. Wait, what? Yeah, I could be wrong. The very last scene is uh, Walt walking down the road and Shelly sees him. She crosses paths and Walt is carrying all sorts of suitcases. And Shelly's like, are you taking a trip? And he says, in a manner of speaking. I took that completely. <laughs> he thought he was moving out. As him moving out. Well, I think in the end of, I could be wrong, but let's see, in the end of that scene with the bench um, is basically they're like, we should, Ruthann says, I've been giving it a lot of thought and I want you to move in. And Walt's like, are you crazy? Like, we're, we hate each other already. You just want to like, like you're saying, like out of the frying pan into the fire. And she says, you know, we've been cooking and eating together and sleeping together. If we're going to crash and burn, we might as well get it over with. 
And um, yeah, I think that was her being like, okay, it's time for you to move in with me. So the very end is him going to move in with her. Okay, never mind that. That's, that's that completely <laughs> changed my mind. But how this scene is ending up. But I agree with you though. No, with if well, maybe maybe not how it ends up, but what you're saying about how Walt is talking about how like you women, he says specifically, like all women are like this, you know, like out of the frying pan into the fire. And I think that is a good point you made because I didn't even catch I couldn't catch any sort of threads connecting these, but I think that definitely like in a kind of sacrificial way tries to tie the Ruth Ann and Walt storyline into the Maggie and her mom storyline. It's like, yeah, there doesn't need to be a thread necessarily there. It's fine. Like they can be their own thing. Mm -hmm. Well, in a way it it sort of is because we're left on a more, now that I know this optimistic (laughs) note, because Walt ends the scene by saying, uh, you're a bit of a firecracker, Ruth Ann. You're not making this easy. But you see that he still wants to make the effort. He, He wants to go the distance with her. Whereas Maggie and her mother's plot line, it kind of cuts it all out. They're kind of like, we're just flat out not engaging with this. We're going to end it at the front door. So in a way, Walton Ruthann's storyline is better, is it not? Yeah, I guess so. Maggie has some, uh, well, we'll get to there at the end, but uh, she does say at the end in like Maggie's storyline, she's like something like, she's like, you know, mom, I've been looking at it like the whole, the wrong way this whole time. I'm going to put all of this foolishness behind me for once and I'm going to get on with my life. Yeah, I guess. Does that mean, well, well we, we can talk about it on that plot line. I still don't really know what she means by that, actually. There's I, a couple options okay, I have. L- before we even get into that, let, yeah. let me reiterate really quickly when I say better. I don't mean that like you need to find a relationship in order to have a fulfilling life. I, I, I don't mean that. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I mean is that like, I mean, like, better in terms of the relationship between Walt and Ruthann. So, like, they're, they want to work on the relationship together rather than just immediately break it up right there. They don't want to just write mm-hmm. it off. In the context of Maggie and her mother's relationship, if Maggie says, I want to just improve on myself and I don't want to focus on relationships with men, I just want to do my own thing for a while, that's completely fine, too. I don't, I'm, yeah. I'm not subscribing to the belief that like, oh, she's got to go find somebody in order to be happy. I'm, I'm not saying that at all. Yeah. And I don't, again, I, I think there's a couple of ways there. It could mean that she's like, I'm going to move on with my life and just enjoy, you know, enjoy my life for once. You know, it could mean like she's ready to hop into real estate and in her money and stuff. Or the one other way I read it was like, I'm going to put all of this like curse stuff behind me and I'm going to like you know, embrace love. Like, I'm not going to be afraid of men dying. Uh, hmm. That's another way I read it. So I, I don't know. It's kind of not explicit. The latter sounds better in my mind. But the end of the episode with Maggie is not anything to do with relationships. It's more of the real estate stuff, right? Right. I, I think that that one would hit a lot harder with me. If Maggie was a character that was written to be very relationship-seeking, and she was a person that yeah, was yeah. always wanting to get into a relationship, but she's not. Like, even from her introduction, she was written as a right. bush pilot that was independent and knew to speak her mind and could do things by herself. And in fact, she moved to Sicily, Alaska to prove that. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it is kind of an odd characterization, in my opinion, for her to have this epiphany and say, like, I don't need to be with somebody to be happy. But I think it's just like her character was already kind of written that way. <laughs> 
Yeah, I don't know. Again, like I, I don't, I don't. Let's let's start from the beginning. Let's let's okay. really let's really uh, investigate what's going on with Maggie here. We already talked about the very first scene with her mom arriving and Leland Cole, her mom's new boyfriend. We we should talk a little bit about how Maggie. Um, I don't know if it's the next scene after the opening title credits, but she's talking with her mom about her trust fund. Yeah, it turns out that Maggie has inherited a windfall of a trust fund. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has turned of age. She is now receiving what is rightfully hers. And it turns out that her father had invested it in, I want to say it's public utilities. Oh, yeah. It was yeah. something bad, right? It was, from my understanding of it, it was something that was like very, very risk adverse. Oh. Yeah. Well, whatever happened, like things turned out good, it turns out, because like it more than doubled or something like that. And Maggie's going to have a lot of money to invest, to, I don't know, to do, she doesn't know exactly what yet, but her mom does say that she should get a prenuptial agreement, essentially, like she's talking about like Joel and them getting married. She says, Oh, we didn't talk about that. Yeah. Like in that earlier scene, her mom was asking about Joel and asking about, you know, when are we going to plan the wedding? You know, cause they are engaged, Joel and Maggie. Maggie does <laughs> mention about Joel. She's like, Oh no, he's not here. He's away. He's uh, he's in the bush vaccinating children. A lot of them. Like she's just like coming up with <laughs> whatever, you know, uh, heroic doctor duty that Joel has to do. It explains why he's not here. Oh, at the very end of that scene, it opens with that, with Maggie um, setting those flowers, you know, close shot on the flowers. Mm -hmm. And it ends with Maggie trying to avoid her mom talking about the wedding stuff. She's like, oh, let me go get some ice for the martinis. You know, she rushes off and it's very quick, but we see her mom go to those flowers that Maggie had just set out before she arrived. And her mom starts, you know, fixing the flowers, you know, fiddling. Yeah, great detail. Yeah. That's a really good one right there. So their plotline at this point is Maggie's mother trying to arrange the wedding mm-hmm. that she believes is still on. And that's what brings us with the prenuptial agreement. Yeah. She tells Maggie things can change. And she says, in this day and age, a woman needs her own money. And the next time we see them, I want to say it's in the brick and it's actually like Leland, like Eugene is mixing cocktails with Leland, taking instructions from Leland, like, all right, four jiggers of bourbon, I forget, whatever amount of vermouth, some dashes of Angostura bitters. And uh, I think it's Shelly, maybe she's like, so if it's got bourbon, why do they call it a Manhattan? Something like that. Did you look into that? I actually don't know. I know that uh, I think Manhattans can also be made with rye whiskey. I don't know why it's called a Manhattan. I do enjoy I do enjoy a Manhattan. There is some theories behind that. And the ones that I got from Wikipedia said that one of them was that it was invented by Ian Marshall for a banquet hosted by Jenny Jerome, which is Winston Churchill's mother, in honor of presidential candidate Samuel J. Tilden. And the success of the banquet made the drink fashionable. So everybody wanted it from Ian Marshall, who worked at the Manhattan Club. Therefore, it's called the Manhattan Cocktail. However, people said that Winston Churchill's mother, Lady Randolph, was in France at the time and pregnant. So maybe a little bit fictitious right there. Yeah, it's not all checking out. Right. And another account is that in the 1860s, it was invented by a bartender named Black at a bar on Broadway near Houston Street. So you get some varying accounts of why it's called a Manhattan, but the loosey-goosey of it all is that it's a very fancy pants drink 
And that's what Leela needs to have the fortification to keep on going, which does not give him the fortification. <laughs> well, before we get there, I wanted to point out that when Eugene is shaking the drink, did you notice how quietly he's trying, like he's barely moving the shaker because there's some dialogue happening, oh. but Eugene has to shake. And so I guess he doesn't want to make a lot of noise. So he's like barely moving the shaker. Um, Leland rushes to, he takes the, he's like, okay, I'm going to take the shaker because take this with me because I got to continue this game of pool. He's playing pool with Hayden Keys and Maggie and her mom are just chilling out. And uh, Leland's like, oh, you know, I've got to, sorry, honey, I've got to go play pool with Hayden. And Maggie's mom's like, oh, it's fine. We're having fun, aren't we? I thought it was hilarious because Maggie's response is obviously one of those things where she says one thing and her face says is is saying a completely different thing. She's like, oh, I think so. Absolutely. I mean, I'm fine. You're fine. So everything's fine. We're all good. Because at this point, Maggie has still not mentioned anything about Joel. Um, and her mom is expecting, you know, as you said, Charles, they're talking all about wedding plans. Oh, Joel actually comes in in this scene, which I think is so f***ed up that he comes into this scene and is immediately like, what are you doing here? Sorry, you can't be in this episode. Go, go away. <laughs> and he's like, all right, fine. Like, I think he was there to go ice fishing with um, Maggie, maybe? It's really like, they really just like kick him out real fast. Yeah, I felt like they had a lot of potential with them this episode. And they just didn't want to deal with it, whether it's due to uh, real life issues or yeah. uh, just a lack of foresight. But no, Joel comes in. And he's very quickly shooed out, like you said. They had ice fishing planned. And now that Maggie's mother came in, Maggie is canceling on him. Lots of cancellation of plans this episode. Yeah. Maybe you're right. Maybe, maybe I don't, you know, maybe there was some real world, you know, maybe because Rob Morrow's leaving the show, he just didn't have a lot of availability. So they wrote this scene knowing that they could shoot him in like a shot or two and get him off set. You know, it wouldn't take him very long. Or maybe something came up in the midst of production and they had only scheduled Joel for like a day or something. And they didn't have a lot of time to shoot with them. So they had to do this scene pretty quick like that. I really don't know. But, um, as you said, yeah, it's total, um, total loss by, by not, uh, not having Joel in this episode could have had a lot of potential there. Basically, you know, his mom was like, who is that guy? Like, cause Joel now doesn't look like, Joel normally would. He's got a beard and bushy hair. And Maggie writes it off. It's just this, uh, as a local, he was lost. And her mom's like, oh, he looked familiar. And Maggie's like, no, he wasn't familiar. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and she, Subtext. <laughs> oh, hey, yeah. Well, I think Maggie is like, oh, yeah, the food has arrived. So she's going to go get Leland from the pool game. And Hayden's just hanging out. And they're like, you know, Maggie's like, all right, Leland, food's up. Like, we got to eat. And Hayden's like, you know, Leland, that Leland's very patient lining up his shot, isn't he? And it, it keeps cutting to like Leland, like he's he's just very still, ready, getting ready to shoot that cue ball, but like lining up the shot, as Hayden said. And it just keeps cutting back to this lifeless body <laughs> until they finally realize that uh, he dead. You know, he's not moving. Yeah. I, I like the, uh, the lighting that's on him. Very harsh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's that, I guess it's that top-down pool lighting, but it's just like very blatantly white. white light of just like, he's dead. It's like, 
It's not, it's not obscured in any shadow. It's obvious. The way the scene ends is uh, Maggie saying, mother, could you come here for a second? And then it like goes to commercial break. Yeah, it turns out that he passed away from a stroke. But what I want to ask, and we know doctors, we, we we should just ask them if this actually happens. When you die like that, do you actually remain that, like exactly how you were composed? Because I would have thought you would just, you, maybe go you know, limp just or collapse. something. Yeah, I really don't know. Yeah, there's the idea of rigor mortis, you know, but that's something that sets on like, what is it, minutes or hours after you die? You like get really stiff. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> he was perfectly in place. Yeah. So I, <laughs> it's like he had rigor mortis thought. early, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, it turns out that Phil is on the scene. They plop him down onto the pool table as a makeshift, what is it, gurney? Yeah. Like an examining table gurney situation. Yeah. The lighting's still very harsh on him. <laughs> Phil's examining him, and, you know, that's it for old Leland right there. And Maggie's mother says, like, all right, well, we got to make plans for, for him. And Hayden says, well, all the graves have been spoken for, unfortunately. And she says, no, like, he's not going to be buried here. We got to take him back to Ohio or was it Iowa? And it turns out that she didn't really know him very well. Yeah, when she says that, you know, I think he has family in Ohio or was it Iowa? There's a shot of um, cuts to a shot of Phil He's been writing something like in his notebook. And then like, as soon as she like says that he like looks up at her like, oh dear, like what's going on here? You know? Good shot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, as we mentioned before, they met on a cruise. Like she doesn't know too much about this guy. He's just uh, a fling that they're having like an adventure. They were on a cruise and now they're going to Alaska. Dr. Phil here, you know, goes to comfort Miss, uh, you know, Maggie's mom and it's basically saying, you know, it's all right. You know, don't worry. It, it, he went quickly and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll take care of it. You know, we'll get, make sure everything's taken care of. And I guess Phil steps away at this point because Maggie's mom turns to Maggie and says, you didn't mention there was another doctor in town. And Maggie pivots. She's like immediately like, uh, doctor, what? No, no, mom. He's a, he's more of a veterinarian, <laughs> which will later come up because, uh, at some point later, Maggie's mom is like, you know, you you worked, uh, you were very kind with all of the professionalism as a real doctor would. She says that to Phil. He's like, real doctor? What are you talking about? <laughs> right. Now we cut to that scene that we were talking about earlier with Phil and Holling eating their sandwiches. Mm-hmm. They immediately get their lunch interrupted. They all pile in. We have Eugene. You have Jane, which is Maggie's mother. You have Hayden. Oh, you do have Maggie. I see her. Yeah. And some other townsfolk. And they're all bringing the body into the barn for safe storage. There's no other place to put him, like they said. So this is going to be his resting place for a little bit. Yeah. They're keeping Leland here. Keep him uh, in the cold to preserve the body and to keep the predators out. (laughs) You know, I think they mentioned this in previous episodes, but uh, they have to dig the, you know, Hayden mentioned that there's no more holes, no more graves that they dug. Uh, They have to dig them before the winter comes or else the ground is too hard. They also in this scene talk about, um, you know, because it's like, oh, oh boy, what are we going to do now? We have to send this back to his family. And the whole town chimes in. They're like, yeah, you could pretty much get a casket right there at the Anchorage airport. And then someone else chimes in. Yeah, sealed aluminum. That's pretty much the standard. 
And then someone else is like, make sure you get the mourner's discount on your flight back home. (laughs) It's like, wait, can you really get the mourner's discount if she's not next of kin? It's like, but you know, there are, they're lovers. It's like it should count or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> what I really like is that Holling is still eating his sandwich <laughs> in the background. <laughs> that disgusting peanut butter pickle mayonnaise sandwich. This is the scene where she tells uh, Maggie's mom tells Dr. Phil, you're every bit as competent as a real doctor, which is funny. It's a callback to Maggie telling her mom that Phil is just a veterinarian. But when does anyone ever say that in real life? Like if you're talking to a veterinarian, you would never be like, you're every bit as competent as a real doctor, right? That's kind of just mean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like You just wouldn't do it. Also, I think it's like different skill sets. Yeah, yeah. Like I think it would be, I don't know. I, I imagine it's pretty difficult to know the anatomy of like all these different animals. Think about the, the pilot episode when Joel, um, well, it's like Ann Gordon brings that beaver in and Joel's like, I'm not a dentist nor a veterinarian. Like, I can't really help you here, (laughs) but I'll take a look, I guess. Anyway, I think that's pretty much that scene, right? They're just kind of setting Leland into this barn. Yeah. The next scene is them returning to that barn. Mm -hmm. Jane is now visiting Leland's corpse and she's talking to him, trying to relate her plans. It's actually kind of sweet because she's saying like, You know, I know that you didn't like the covers on too tight and here's what we're, what's going to happen. I'm going to fly you back to this place. We're going to bring you to your relatives. I got in contact with your mother-in-law, stuff like that. And then Maggie comes into the scene and she's saying mm-hmm. like, what are you doing? Jane says, you know, this kind of stuff like kind of happens with me because, you know, there was like old flames that I had that would also do stupid crap and get themselves killed. <laughs> yeah, it it is revealed here. That Maggie's mom had multiple boyfriends in the past die on her. Like she she starts it off by saying, like, you know, your father, ask him. He 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 said our marriage was killing him. He said he was dying in our marriage. And then she's like, No, it literally happened to like my old flame, Cappy Moss, on sophomore year in the summer. We were out in a canoe and Cappy was showing off and he dove in and never came back. There's also a Robert Hensel. Uh, who, who was allergic to bee stings. So it's like, I can't be blamed for that. He was allergic to bees. I told him to stay away from bees. And this is the mommy's curse, the title of the episode. Maggie realizes that she's inherited this curse from her mother. She says, you should have told me this already. You knew, because I guess according to the canon here, Maggie says that her mom already knew that she's had all these boyfriends die on her. And um, Maggie's mom, like, what are you talking about? Like, it's either Maggie's mom um, forgot about this all, like blanked it from her memory, or she didn't, she wanted to keep it a secret. But she uh, also kind of spins it back around to Maggie and says, well, it's it's not true. The curse isn't real because look at you and Joel. You guys are fine. And this is where Maggie has to finally admit to her mom that Joel's gone. She says, really gone. I was going to tell you, it just got easier not to tell you. Yeah, it actually ends in a very sweet note where Maggie's mom says, I am so sorry. And Maggie says, oh, you don't have to be. But then Jane says, but I am. And then the scene ends right there. Yeah, there's there's a lot of nice little moments that it's, um, you know, I guess you could say it's kind of present in the writing in the way it's sort of uh, holding back. Like it's not overwritten. But I also think, again, not to toot the horn of old uh, Michael Lang too much, but I also think it's just like 
Michael Lang finding these moments, these actors, you know, the crew, like, you know, the, the production, like we can credit it all. They're finding these little moments that, you know, on paper don't amount to much of just like a couple lines. For instance, like uh, I loved the moment when Walt goes to join Maggie at the bar later, which I guess is coming up in the, in a, a scene coming up here. Um, but just these little, the way that, uh, Ruthann and Walt are sitting on the bench together. I think the last shot is like a two shot from behind them. And it's just a perfectly symmetrical sort of composition there. There's a few moments in this episode that are just like little breaths. You would call maybe little breaths in a screenplay. Like there's not even a lot of, uh, you you wouldn't write anything in the pages there. It's just what you filmed, you know? And it it's a nice little moment, I think. Right, right. It comes alive behind the lens of the camera rather than on the words on the paper. Mm-hmm. Well, the next scene is Maggie drinking at the brick, right? And at first I thought she was alone, but the camera does its sort of panning. You know, we get to see more uh, kind of dolling around, wrapping around Maggie. We could see that there's more people, uh, you know, occupying the brick. But Maggie's kind of alone here at the bar. Eugene is next to her cleaning up. I thought he was closing up the shop, but as I mentioned, there's still people there. Maggie realizes here over a drink, talking it out through Eugene, she realizes that her whole life she was rebelling against the image of her mother, only now to realize that they're so much the same. You know, like we know that Maggie moved from Gross Point because she didn't want to be daddy's little girl, you know, in Gross Point, Michigan. She wanted to make a name for herself, you know, bush pilot of Alaska. She wanted to get far away from the city and reinvent herself. But it turns out in the very end, she's so much like her mother. She's got the curse. And I love uh, Eugene's, you know, I mean, I think Eugene is humoring her. He's kind of talking to her. But at the very end of this little scene here where where Maggie makes that realization, Eugene's response is, uh, he's not even really looking at her. He's kind of like looking down at the bar. He smacks his lips and he just says, interesting. And then like walks away. Yeah, I thought that I was a really... I odd choice. Like <laughs> yeah. on the paper, it would have just read Eugene says interesting. Yeah. And I was wondering, I was like, is that really like the best way to cap off the scene? <laughs> it's kind of humorous that it doesn't, it's weird because Eugene is engaging her. And then at the very, like throughout the scene and at the end of the scene, he's like, okay, cool. And then like walks off. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's uh, to show that Maggie is like getting a little too much into the sauce or something. I really don't know. But at that point, Walt comes in. We describe this, and he sits next to Maggie. We have that fade out. Uh, next is Maggie and her mom. They're over by Maggie's plane, and I think she mentions something like, "Oh, you got to leave so soon," or something like it's it's uh, we didn't get to do enough, or something like that. So we're to understand that Maggie's mom is preparing to leave, and this is where we kind of talked about this a little bit, but this is where we can really dive into it. Maggie says that she's finished with men. And uh, she's like, I'm done or whatever. And I think it's really interesting now that uh, her mom, that Jane, is basically saying, like, you got to, like, flip the perspective here. You know, it's not our curse. What if it's them? What if it's men? You know, she says they have no fortitude. She says they're always dying or skedaddling off at the first hint of trouble. And tell me this, who is left to pick up the pieces, ship the body, clean out the closets? us. And they have the audacity to call us the weaker sex. Maggie's response here, she says, I don't know, mother, physiologically, we are smaller, weaker, you know, which is 
when does Maggie ever say that? Maggie would never <laughs> in a million years say that women are weaker than men, you know? But it's just, uh, I guess, honestly, I just think it's just writing for that scene to make it play off so that her mom can keep talking, you know? Right, right. And this is where Leland comes in with the other guys and they're delivering his body, trying to get him onto the plane. And Maggie's mom makes the distinction and says, like, you know, if it wasn't for Frank, I wouldn't be this strong as I am now. Mm. Because Frank used to do everything. He used to handle all the finances, the portfolios. But now that we separated, I had to learn it myself. And Frank was always so risk adverse. And he'd invest in these things that just wouldn't return that much. Mm-hmm. And I like to diversify. I wasn't like absolutely gambling, but you got to take some risks. And she's trying to relate this all by saying that like, you know, she is different from Frank. I get what they're trying to do for this entire exchange right here. Uh, I, I just kind of feel like it's well-trodden territory, though. I don't feel like they're saying anything really new. No, yeah. Even, even if you agree with the premise, I, I just think they're like, I, I don't know. I, I feel like we've been down this road before. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that they flip that curse and be like, it's more of a matter of perspective. Like, what if it's men? What if it's not us? But- it's not like Maggie isn't already, like you're saying, like she already is a strong, independent woman. Uh, she already, you know, doesn't necessarily need a romantic partner or doesn't have to be afraid of this curse or whatever. I think we've gotten, in fact, it was like there were a couple episodes there between Joel and Maggie where they didn't even really bring up the fact that there was that curse, you know, but it does obviously come back up again in this season here and in previous episodes, but felt like they had kind of like forgotten about that and then returned to that story Bible there. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, I think I agree with you here. It's, um, not necessarily a revelation or anything like that, but I guess, uh, we have Maggie, the mayor and now Maggie, the real estate agent. I mean, she already kind of was like a realtor, right? Yeah. Cause she was showing like hauling and Shelly around different places for, for houses and, Previous episodes, she shows Marilyn and stuff like that, different houses. Mm-hmm. And this is where the writers do a little trick, where they return back to the previous subject, the very first subject that was raised, which is that Maggie kind of doesn't listen to her mother. Mm. She kind of just branches off by herself. But when they get into the plane, Maggie earnestly asks Jane for advice on what to do with the trust fund. And Jane says, well, if you want my advice, you should put it into real estate, but not just any real estate. You want to invest in commercial. You don't want to do residential. And it, to me, I took it as subtext saying like, residential is like a household. It's where you grow a family. Mm. Commercial is where you invest in career. That makes sense. So that's where I was taking it from. Yeah. And, you know, if you think about this, uh, that, that makes so much sense. But yeah, if you think about this, Maggie has previously you know, as, as a realtor has been focused on the residential, you know, showing houses to Marilyn, to Shelly and Holling. You know, she gave Joel his first apartment. Now, uh, Phil and Michelle Capra have that apartment that she showed them. So moving away from the residential, going commercial. Maggie's mom says, Alaska, the final frontier. Believe me, this place isn't going to do anything but grow. And the last scene we get with Maggie is an understated one, but it's pretty obvious. Like Maggie is standing outside of the movie theater, which is apparently closed indefinitely. I didn't realize when it closed, but maybe it's a newer addition with this episode. 
Ed walks up to her as she's just kind of standing out in front of the uh, the old closed movie theater. And he says, what are we looking at? And Maggie says, I'm just thinking, you know, we got, obviously there's signs that are saying like closed uh, for the foreseeable future. I don't know what it says, something like that. <laughs> and then there's one that's like for sale. So, you know, maybe Maggie's going to open up the movie theater. So that's all we've got this week for The Mommy's Curse. I know we mentioned up top that we're interviewing Michael Lang for this episode, and that's what we'll be publishing next week. So tune in next week. We talk all about The Mommy's Curse with Michael Lang remembering shooting this episode and also even more moments from his memories working on Northern Exposure. In the meantime, if you haven't checked it out, go back to our season five retrospective where we talk with Michael about Cottage for Uncle Manny, amongst other episodes that he directed for Northern Exposure. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Northern Overexposure podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to B-Ball Y'all for the podcast artwork. And thanks to you for being our listener. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.